I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but um, I have these moments where I have a, um, a toolbox, uh, a tool bag, or a drawer, and it gets so cluttered with stuff, with tools, that I know that what I'm looking for is in there, and I'll start digging around in there, and I can't find it. Eventually, I will have to reach the point where I take the tool bag, dump the whole thing out, and start over again. I'm getting an amen from Stan here. He knows that that's happened. You just have to sometimes start over. You have to find out what everything is in there and then sort through it. We need to do that as we move into the next basic, which has to do with sin. Okay. Because there's so much stuffed in the toolbox or the drawer where we keep sin that we don't it's all cluttered up in there, and we might have to dump it out and sort it out and find out, well, there's some things that don't belong in here, some things that we're looking at and, and wondering, why have we kept that? And we need to just chuck it out. And then some things that we'll rediscover and say, well, okay, this could become useful again in another way. Join me in uh, uh, looking at Romans 3, okay? And I want to show you, this is, what, this is what has prompted me to dump the, the box out. In Romans 3, verse uh, 21 and following, um, Paul is, is giving a view of, of history and of what God has done and what's happened to humanity, and he's moving through this. And, and, and we like to take Romans 3.23 as a well-worn tool and uh, you know, chunk that out there quite often. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. We all say that. We don't. What do we mean? And we just go through that, and it becomes a proof text. And that's the that's the problem with a proof text is we forget why it proves anything. Okay, but we use that to to underline the idea that everyone has sinned. And of course, sometimes when you underline that everyone has sinned, really nobody has sinned. Uh, If we've all sinned, then we're all the same. Okay, I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. All right, let's move on. But let's dump the drawer out and let's see what's in there. Okay, verse 21, Paul starts and he says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his unrighteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I believe that Paul, right here, has just dumped out the toolbox that all of Israel and Christian believers at that point were familiar with. Because he says, uh, he's talking about the law, he's talking about righteousness, he's talking about the fact that no one is righteous, he talks about those who are apart from God, those who are uh, part of God's family, and he says, now, all of a sudden, we need to recognize that there's a, uh, that apart from the law, there's a righteousness that has been made known. 
that, the, that, that there is a category of righteousness different than the kind of righteousness you would expect with the law. Paul has just dumped the drawer out and he's sorting through it. Now, I'm going to stop right there on Romans. We'll come back to that in other uh, sessions. But right now I want you to see what's scattered out on the table. Salvation. Glory. Righteousness. Justification. Being justified. Being sanctified. Grace. Redemption. Atonement. That's just a sampling of some of the words that we've, you know, dropped out of this section. If we've turned it over and we've scattered these concepts on the table, there's a list. Now, a lot of those words have more than two syllables. Some have more than three. And those are words that we don't always use in everyday speech. Righteousness, justification, sanctification, redemption, atonement. But they're very important words. And maybe the best way to um, understand them is to start with a story. What's great about a story is a story can bring you into the experience of that. Uh, I, you know, if, if you've ever learned how to do something, eventually there comes a point where somebody can tell you how to do something. They can show you a book that you can read, but eventually you're going to have to go and you're going to have to watch someone do this and say, okay, now do what I do. Let me show you how this works. Here, you try it. You have to get that experience. Stories allow us to enter into the experience of other people. This is why Jesus taught in parables. Stories are, though, by nature, uh, a little fuzzy because they contain a lot of uh, extra detail that, if we miss the point, can become confusing. You know, someone might have said to Jesus, Jesus, why can't you just give us a direct answer? Why can't you just give us three or four points? Why do you have to teach us with stories? Because they had had direct answers for thousands of years, and they had had five or six bullet points. In fact, they had a ten bullet point document that was supposed to teach them how to live called the Ten Commandments, and they were still getting that one confused. The story, the parable, makes you enter into God's experience. And you live inside of it, and you realize, oh, okay, now, now I get it. Now I get the feel for this. I understand what it's like. The best story on sin and the fallenness and falling short of glory, we're going to find in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the heading in your Bible probably says something like the fall. Um, I, I don't know that that's the best heading for this story in fact I just uh, I'm just going to make a little line through it right there because I don't want to assume it's the fall I mean part of this story tells me how God feels about all of this if I was looking at this from God's standpoint I would say this is the great disappointment this is the heartbreak but we're going to go to a garden uh, and in this garden we're going to see how good things are, and then we're going to see what, what messes it up. Uh, this is the garden season. I don't know. I guess good gardeners have their gardens out by now. I don't even have our garden boxes made yet. I'm very thankful for my son who's building our garden boxes, and maybe we're actually going to get something done this year.
But here in this garden, and gardens are peaceful, gardens you can work, you, you sort of return to what we're doing. And when God makes this good creation, and he makes man and woman, he doesn't just make them and let them live on the earth like wild animals. They've got a job to do. They take care of the earth. They take care of the garden. And the garden sustains them. The garden provides them food. And God fellowships with them in the garden. There's unity there between the creatures and their creator, between the humans and their king. But that all goes astray. And we're going to see who's to blame for this and exactly why. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. She ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. And to Adam, the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's easy to get caught up in this story and wonder why on earth uh, snakes are talking, and do they have arms and legs before this? And it's easy to get... Uh, caught up in this story and wonder how is it that God doesn't know the things that God is supposed to know? Why is God asking silly questions for Adam? Who told you you were naked? You know, well, that ought to be obvious, shouldn't it? And, uh, you know, and when, and when God says, hey, where are you? Why don't they just say, well, you're om- you know, omniscient. Why don't you figure it out? I mean, what, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the details of this story and miss the fact that the truth is being given to us in the form of a dialogue. It's being given to us in the form of a story. And encapsulated in this story 
is everything that we need to know that will sort out all those concepts that we dumped out of the toolbox in Romans 3 and other scriptures too. What is amazing about this truth in Genesis is that right here, in just those short verses, it explains it all. It explains everything. Now, if we look at it, just, you know, kind of fly over it and don't get caught up on how Eve is talking to serpents and what does that mean about the world before the fall. and Because that, that, none of that is what the scripture is trying to teach us. First of all, the serpent is more crafty than any of the wild animals. Every time that our cleverness comes into our relationship with God, whether it's our clever idea or somebody else's clever idea or some sort of uh, uh, clever, crafty, neat way of explaining everything and, and making, in our in our idea making more sense out of the world than God ever intended for us to make out of it that's when things start to be a problem it's it's craftiness it's pride it's arrogance it's the self-conceit that says well wait a second maybe at some level we can be as good as God or we can know what God knows I mean if you think about it that's everything that the serpent is offering to Adam and Eve here First, there's a question. Somebody said once that uh, the, the serpent is the first, the, the first of the world's theologians. Uh, that's, a, that's a bad knock on theologians, but the idea is it's the first time that God gets questioned. Did God really mean it when he said, don't eat from the fruit of this tree? Or, and, and notice the craftiness. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman affirms the fact, oh, we eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but there's one tree in the middle, and no, we don't want to touch it. And it's not because God is a big killjoy who doesn't want them to have the wonderful fruit that's from that tree. It's because God is protecting them. That there is an order and there is a way of doing things that protects us. And it's when we think that we can go beyond that, that that's where sin comes into things. Um, Notice that the temptation is, and the, the alternative, you know, uh, to God's word is, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. I didn't know her eyes were closed. What, what is it? Well, you understand that her eyes being opened is a metaphor for understanding. It means that she will be able to perceive. Your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation here is not just that the fruit is uh, good for food and pleasing to the eye, but it is also desirable for gaining wisdom. What's bad about wisdom? Nothing. In fact, most of Scripture tells us to seek wisdom. James says if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God and he'll provide it. But in this case... The wisdom is an attempt to take the place of God. To replace the God who cares for humanity with our own ability to do it for ourselves. And you know, there's so many good things that get caught up 
in that attempt that, well, you know, we, we decide, well, we can do this as well as anybody. We can do this as well as anybody, even God. And the problem with our pride is, is that in, in, you know, C.S. Lewis says that pride is the greatest sin because pride never ends. And pride is always about, it's not just pride in being rich or in being smart or in being beautiful, but it's in being richer than anyone else smarter than anybody else, more beautiful than anybody else, more powerful than anybody else. So it's not about pursuing those things alone. You can never have enough because you have to be the most powerful person. In his address, and this is in his book, Mere Christianity, he says you can never have two people in the same field of study um, who one doesn't think that he's smarter than the other. I mean, there's never, there's never agreement. There's always a, a competition. And that's exactly what's entered into the good garden, is this sense of competition with the serpent's lie that says, you can be just as good as God. So maybe he was just keeping you away from, you know, you're not going to die. He's just telling you that because he doesn't want to have to compete with you. And God is lowered to our level And the lie that we're being told is is that we can be like God. And if you look at the first few chapters, really the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the sin is not that we're only human. Being human is actually a good thing. And, and, And there's no apology for being human. In fact, what usually gets us into trouble is, is that we think that we're going to become gods or we're going to be God. Or we're behaving like wild animals. It's everything on the other side of that that's the problem. So after this unfortunate incident, and and by the way, Adam gets so easily off the hook here. Uh, Everything's blamed on poor Eve. Uh, Don't you believe it? She's not, this is not the myth of uh, Pandora where the woman brings all the problem into the world. Um, Adam, Adam's just as, you know, he's just as involved in this. Uh, the only thing that Eve could have done that would have been even worse is if she had taken the apple and turned it into an apple pie or something. So it, uh, you know, they're both engaging in this. And again, that's more than, that's more freight than the story is meant to carry is to talk about how Eve does this, but Adam is innocent. No, I mean, later on, Paul will say that, you know, she was deceived first, and then Adam follows right in line with it. So all of humanity, men and women, are complicit in this. And by the way, that's another thing, is in this story, we can't blame anybody else. That's what the story does for us. Because as long as, if if there are more humans involved in this, then we could say, I mean, we've only got two humans to pick from in this story, Adam and Eve, and we're already trying to blame one and exonerate the other. It's all the woman's fault. Well, it's all the man's fault for not telling her, you know, telling her not to be talking to strange snakes, you know, whatever. We just got two humans and we're still debating over whose fault is it. Can you imagine if this story involved whole communities of people? Then we would wonder, well, you know, they had really deserved what they got. And this group over here can't be blamed. Again, that's that game that we play. This story reduces things down to its simplest form. And every sin is ultimately 
we as human beings thinking, believing, acting as if we can be God. That's the basic principle. Where it always leads is death and corruption. Now God told them that they would die. Their eyes are opened. And in the opening of their eyes, what they end up with is shame. They didn't eat this fruit and end up being naked because all their clothes fall off. You know, this, is not a, this is not a sexual problem. The, the, the being naked, the being, in fact, a better way to translate would, that would be to say their eyes were opened and they were exposed. They knew that they were exposed. Shame enters into the world at this point. There's shamefulness. Now they have to start hiding they start hiding from one another. They start hiding from God. Here God shows up in the garden at the time when he thinks, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to see the, the people, the, the, the man and the woman, and I'm going to see how they're doing, and I'm going to see how they're taking care of my garden. And they're not where they're supposed to be. There's a lot of sins that happen in Scripture because someone is not where they're supposed to be. If you read the story of David before his sin with uh, Bathsheba, the story begins by saying it was a springtime when kings go to war and David was on the rooftop of his house. Isn't he supposed to be at war? That's right. He's not where he was supposed to be. And that means that he ends up in a long series of sins. And, and, and that's, that's, again, that's probably one, we might use that for another time, but he starts to hide. He starts to cover things up. He thinks that he knows better than God. Likewise here, they're hiding from God. There's shame. Shame enters into it. But all that is exposed before God. And now there's some things to sort out. God has to, uh, you know, in his conversation with them, it's not that God is somehow unaware or doesn't know, but the conversation moves the story so that we can see God's heart. We can see God's mind. We can we can feel for God even in this. Listen to the questions that God asked. These are the questions of someone who's asking why. Because so often we want to, when bad things happen, we want to say, why God? Why did this happen? And it's okay to do that. There's plenty of Psalms that, that, that guide us in that. Even Jesus on the cross says, why God? Why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22. But here... God is asking, what is this that you've done? Why did you do this? It didn't have to happen this way. God is asking the why questions for the first time. Look at his questions. Where are you? Are you not where you're supposed to be? He's saying, why are you hiding? Uh, the man says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that? Why do you have this concept of being exposed is what God is saying. What, what, why, why are you suddenly afraid of me? Did you do what I told you not to do? The man said, uh, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And uh, the Lord God asked her, what is this? Why did you do this? And, and listen to God's heart in this. He's saying, what, what, did, what happened here that you thought 
that all the other trees in the garden weren't enough that you had to have the one that I told you, stay away from that, it can hurt you, it can kill you. Well, serpent deceived me. God doesn't have much to say to the serpent. He's not too worried about this. But what happens is there are consequences. Now, they're described as curses. Yeah. And God definitely intends to bring about some of these curses. Some of these curses are the cure, ultimately, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. It's not just God being mean and throwing down thunderbolts from heaven. God told them that if you do this, then some things are going to unravel. Some things are going to unwind. And some of that needs to happen. The enmity between the serpent and the woman. Well, if you don't believe that's true, go look at those videos that everybody's posting with these swollen rivers and all them snakes running out of there. People running like mad and killing snakes and, you know... They wouldn't be doing that if it was beavers coming out of the water. I mean, you know, big deal. Or fish. So what? They flop around. There's just something creepy about snakes. I don't care how much of a herpetologist you claim to be, okay? Uh, you can pet them and love them, make them your pet, whatever you want. At the end of the day, they're just a little creepy. And, uh, and, and, um, and you know, part of this is good so that uh, human beings will stop talking to idiot snakes with big ideas you know that this is this is this is part of it uh there's there's you know your eyes get open and there's a price to be paid uh there are prices to be paid because now humanity and the process of bringing new humans into this earth and our relationship with the earth it's scarred Someone might ask, well, wait a second, why does all that have to happen? Why do we have to have all these curses? All right, well, just, just think about it like this. When we break trust with someone, when we do something, uh, we lie to someone or we cheat on someone or we abuse someone, that relationship can be healed. The sins can be forgiven. But trust can never be mended as pure as it was. It can be rebuilt, but it won't be exactly the same. Now, if that's the case with our human relationships, how much more then? I mean, we had this relationship with the earth, and all of a sudden now, we enter into it not as the humans who take good care of the earth, who do the obedient thing and trust God, but now we start to say, you know what, that tree in the middle of the garden... We can use that. We can use that for all it's worth. No wonder the earth sort of recoils and says, uh, don't trust you anymore, humans. You say, wait, where is that in the story? It's in there. Take a look at the, uh, uh, towards the end, when God's talking about the curses, and he says, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, thorns and thistles aren't, aren't natural to the earth. That's the earth putting up its defenses. I'm not creating some kind of biological theory of thorns and thistles here. I'm just saying, isn't it poetic and isn't it interesting that in this story, the thorns and thistles represent the earth saying, not sure about this. Ah, well, okay, I know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Still not convinced. Okay, take a look at Romans 8. In... um, In Romans 8, 
verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Where's Paul getting this? Is he making this up? He's read the story. It's all right there. The creation, bonded to the process of decay now, the pain of childbirth. The creation is saying... you read that and you can hear the creation saying, I, we, will, we, all of creation, will be so glad when you human beings, men and women, really truly behave like the children of God, can really become that transformed children of God like God intended, because then we can all rest easier. When humanity is God's true humanity, then all of the rest of creation is okay because we were made to take care of that creation. And we're not going to get there ourselves. We're not going to get there through new green deals and through uh, you know, refusing to drink plastic straws and all that. You go right ahead and do that if you want. I'm not against it, and this isn't some right-wing, left-wing thing. I mean, I'm all for it. Are there things we can do that would be good, that would be responsible to uh, take care of the good world that God has given us? Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. We can't do it by our own initiative. And every time we think that we're going to come up with some plan that's going to save the world, we're ripping another fruit right off that tree and saying, we can do this just like they did in the story. See how this works? That's why if we go back over to our table where we've dumped out all the things like atonement and justification and sanctification and faith and righteousness, now as we start to sort through those things, we realize God has equipped us and given us tools that maybe some of them we've stuck away in a drawer and we're not even sure really how to use them because we keep looking for the solution that's on the tree that we weren't supposed to touch in the first place. That's our basics for now. Uh, we'll build on that and we'll keep talking about these things. But I want you to hear that story because we're going to keep coming back to that story. It explains so much. And it's, uh, it's kind of our test case and our model for what all the rest of this stuff means. All right, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, right now, uh, we're going to uh, sing a song. And during this song, if you need to partake of communion, that's been prepared in room 100. And, uh, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. Let's stand. Let's sing.